Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading at verse 12 this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12, down through verse 23. And I tend to preach a sermon this morning to you entitled, Union with a Risen Christ. Union with a Risen Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. These are the words of God. Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain? Your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished." If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at His coming. The development of Christian theology has a lot in common with the construction of a house. There is a specific order that must be followed to successfully complete the project. You can't lay the flooring before you install your plumbing, right? You can't paint the walls before you run your electrical. And you certainly can't finish the second story before you build the first story. In any construction project, there are items which are prerequisite to others. There are things that must be completed before other things can begin. We've learned this quite intimately as we've been working on this building here, haven't we? Well, the same is true of Christian theology. Christian theology is not a system of isolated propositions. It's not a a series of doctrines that are completely independent from one another. And just like the tasks involved in building a house, some doctrines are prerequisite to others. The coherency and validity of some doctrines depends on the previous establishment of other doctrines. For example, we believe in the absolute sinlessness of Christ. We believe in the sinless life of Christ. Amen? Amen. But if we don't first establish the doctrine of the virgin birth, then we cannot make sense of the doctrine of Christ's sinlessness. So that's just an example to illustrate this point. There are some doctrines that are foundational and necessary for other doctrines. 
And it's important for you to understand this concept because this concept is the basis for Paul's entire argument in verses 12 through 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is proceeding in his defense of the resurrection of believers on the last day by arguing from a doctrine that is even more foundational. What is the doctrine that, that, that is the, the foundation, that is the grounds, that is the basis for our resurrection on the last day? Well, it's the resurrection of Christ. In other words, Paul is going to prove the reality of the house by pulling back the drywall and pulling up the laminate flooring and showing us the foundation upon which this house is built. That's what he's doing in this text. We've got a good bit of ground to cover, and I want to hasten to our text. But let me give you a, a brief overview of what Paul is doing in these verses, okay? Paul will now demonstrate the absurdity of denying the resurrection on the last day by reminding the Corinthians that the resurrection is an essential component of the gospel that they have already believed. His proposition is, is simple. It is this. If Christ was resurrected on the third day, then all of his people will be resurrected on the last day. So even though Paul is ultimately seeking to prove the resurrection of believers on the last day, and that's ultimately what the Corinthians were denying, they were denying the future resurrection, Paul spends most of his time defending the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago. Because if he can prove the foundation... He can prove the house as one doctrine is consequential to another. Paul then goes on in this text to list the atrocious consequences of denying the resurrection of Christ. And he shows us several things that must be true, several consequences, perilous, dastardly consequences of denying the resurrection of Christ. And then he concludes this section with an emphatic affirmation of our union with Christ as his people, and that includes our union with his resurrection. So there's a few things that I want to show you in this text. The first, in verses 12 through 13, I want you to see, number one, the present dilemma. The present dilemma. Paul begins and he says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? The Christ preached by the Apostle Paul was unquestionably a risen Christ. As we've already seen, when Paul preached the gospel in Corinth, the resurrection of Christ was an essential component of that gospel. What Paul is doing in verse 12 is showing the Corinthians that their denial of the resurrection is inconsistent with what they've previously believed. A lot of times when someone has a, a, a major uh, theological uh, uh, de deficiency in their theology, uh, their, their, their health in the faith, if you will, their, their, even their, their, uh, their, the reality of their salvation is often dependent on a blessed inconsistency. But really, a lot of times you'll run across people that they believe something that if they were consistent with their theology, uh, they would just fall into rank heresy. And so Paul is showing them here that, that if you're going to deny the resurrection on the last day, this is what you must believe by consistency's sake. So don't go there, in other words, is what he's saying. It's important for us to note that 
the crux of their denial was the resurrection of believers on the last day. It was the doctrine of the final resurrection to which some in the Corinthian church objected. And Paul demonstrates that the problem with their denial is that it proves too much. Because if you deny the final resurrection, you must, by necessity, deny the resurrection of Christ. Oftentimes, false doctrine will lead to an even more seditious and dangerous false doctrine, and such is the case here, 1 Corinthians 15. I have a feeling that the tone of verse 12, when Paul originally wrote it, was a lot more passionate and animated than when we read it today. Uh, Paul is not mildly concerned when he hears that the Corinthian church, that there are some in the Corinthian church who are denying the resurrection. I don't think that uh, verse 12 was originally written uh, like, well, brothers, uh, if Christ be preached that, that he rose from the dead, how say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? No, I think Paul is absolutely beside himself. And in verse 12, we should really read it like this. How in the world? Could some of you dare to say that there is no resurrection? You have lost your minds. That's what Paul is saying in verse 12. Paul knew that this church had issues, but this denial was on a whole other level. I've told you before that of all the problems in the Corinthian church, this is the most heinous one. Because you, you, you don't go to hell just because you sue your brother and take him to court. You don't go to hell just because you eat meat sacrificed to idols. But if you deny the resurrection of Christ, you will go to hell. Well, that brings us to a question that we have postponed so far as we've worked our way through chapter 15, and I want to answer it this morning. Why were some in the Corinthian church denying the resurrection? They didn't get that from Paul. Right? They didn't get that from Peter. They didn't get that from Apollos. Where did they get this denial of the resurrection? Where does a member of a Christian church come up with the idea that the dead won't be raised on the last day? Well, there's two possibilities here. Number one, this denial could have come from a Sadducean influence in the church. Uh, the Sadducees were a sect of the Jews that opposed Christ during His earthly ministry. You know, the, the Pharisees were the ultra-conservative, legalistic sect of the Jews, but the Sadducees were just the opposite. The Sadducees were, were the, the liberals. If, if the Sadducees were alive today, they would be in that postmodern crowd that doesn't believe in objective reality and objective truth, right? Uh, the Sadducees denied much of the supernatural. They didn't believe in an afterlife, and they didn't believe in, in angels, and they didn't believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, and you know, you've heard this before. That's why they were sad, you see. Okay? That's how we were taught in college to remember the difference between the Pharisees and Sadducees. Remember, it was the Sadducees that tried to stump Jesus with that foolish question about the woman who outlived seven husbands, and they said, Well, see there, ha ha ha. Uh, if she's outlived these seven husbands, who will her husband be in the resurrection? Well, they asked that foolish question because they believed that the resurrection was a foolish doctrine. That's one possibility. However, given the location of the Corinthian church, it's unlikely that their denial 
stemmed from a Sadducean influence, okay? Rather, it is more probable that their denial of the resurrection came instead from Gnosticism. We've talked about Gnosticism before because it's affected several issues in the Corinthian church. And the Gnostics believed a number of very dangerous false doctrines, but one of the key tenets of Gnosticism was a doctrine called dualism. Dualism. What does dualism teach? Well, dualism teaches that, there, there is, that the whole world is essentially uh, a story of the, the battle between material evil and spiritual good. And so everything that is material is evil, inherently evil. Your body, your flesh and your bones are inherently evil and only the spiritual immaterial aspects of you have any worth and value. Okay, think about that for a moment. Do you see how believing that would naturally lead to a denial of the resurrection? By the way, it's also what led to the problems of fornication in the Corinthian church. Remember the, the old axiom that Paul was quoting there? Uh, that, that, you know, the meats for the belly, the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. The idea is that, well, my body is evil and God's going to destroy my body. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. I can, I can commit fornication with my body. I can uh, trash my body and destroy my body. It doesn't matter because my body is just this prison house of the soul. My body is just this, this cage that my soul is trapped in. And death is a great thing because death releases my soul from this awful prison of a body. Well, if you believe that, a resurrection makes no sense. It's a step back if you believe that. And it's more than likely that this false doctrine of Gnosticism was the influence that led to some in the Corinthian church denying the resurrection. And make no mistake about it, this doctrine of the body taught by Gnostic dualism is a false doctrine that directly opposed a Christian theology of the body. One of the other consequences that, that the Gnostics, which really made them rank heretics in the second century, was because of their belief in the material being evil, they could not believe that the Son of God became a man. So they denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ because a man cannot be God, right? In their view, in their view. But you must understand that the Bible teaches a distinctly Christian theology of the body. And, and you need to be aware of that, especially with all of the perversion that goes on in our world today. You need to know that God has something to say about your body, your physical body. And here's what he has to say about it. God created your body, and he created it good. Your body is not inherently evil. God created Adam and Eve, and he said, this is good. Sin has corrupted what God created good, but the God who created you is the God who redeems you. And your redemption is not complete until you are resurrected because the resurrection is the consummation of the salvation of the whole person. The resurrection is when God applies redemption to your physical body. He's already applied it to your soul, to your spirit, but he has not yet fully applied it to your body. God does not discard what he created. He redeems what he created. He doesn't discard it because 
It was created good. There's no need to throw it away. We just need to purify it from the effects of sin. In first, or 2 Corinthians 5, God tells us, when if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. But he then goes on to explain what that means. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Notice it doesn't say that God creates all new things. He creates all things new. And there's coming a day in which he will create you anew. He will create your body anew. It doesn't mean he's going to create a new body for you, but he's going to take your body and create it new. So we must wholeheartedly reject the idea that our bodies do not matter because God's going to destroy them in the end anyways. No, our bodies are part of the creation that God will redeem. Therefore, we must glorify God in our bodies and we must know that there is coming a day in which God will restore our bodies and remove from it the curse of sin. So that's the, the false doctrine that led to a denial of the resurrection in the Corinthian church. But notice what, what Paul goes on to say. He says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not raised. Paul goes on to state the terrifying consequence of denying the resurrection of the dead on the last day. To say that the dead will not rise is to say that Christ did not rise. And to say that Christ did not rise is to throw the whole Christian religion out the window. A resurrectionless gospel is no gospel at all. It would have been inconceivable to the apostles to think that the resurrection didn't occur. It was the, the grounds and the basis for their entire ministry. The gospel of those who deny the resurrection is not the gospel of Christ. It is a myth that they've created in their own minds. And you must be on guard because there are those who still believe and teach this today. There are men who began as orthodox preachers and teachers of the word of God who would go on to deny the final resurrection of the dead. Even men that I, earlier in my ministry, would, would read after and would profit from that today are, are in camps where they're denying the future resurrection of the dead. And these men claim to be Christians and they, they claim to believe in a literal resurrection of Christ. But Paul goes on to show us in 1 Corinthians 15 that when someone denies the final resurrection, they must of necessity deny the resurrection of Christ and they place themselves outside the pale of orthodox Christianity. Can you, brothers and sisters, conceive of a Christianity without a resurrection? Can you imagine a gospel without a risen Savior? Well, what Paul will now show us is exactly what that would look like. He lists, depending on how you want to count them, this is how I've counted them. He lists four consequences of a gospel without a resurrected Christ. Four things that must be true if Christ is not risen from the dead. So let me walk through this list with you. We've seen the present dilemma. That is, that there are some in the church denying the resurrection. But let me show you, secondly, the perilous denial. The perilous denial. And it is a perilous denial because of everything else that must be denied if the resurrection of Christ is rejected. 
So look with me, beginning in verse 14. Number one, the first consequence. Verse 14, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. The word vain in verse 14 refers to the emptiness of Christianity if Christ has not risen from the dead. If Christ be not raised, then my preaching to you this morning is worthless. If Christ be not raised, your faith is devoid of any moral, spiritual, or intellectual value. If Christ be not raised, then your dependence on Christ is a dependence on nothing. If Christ be not raised, Christianity is a myth and we worship a non-existent Jesus. Don't you see that the whole ministry of the gospel is undermined and subverted if Christ did not rise from the dead? Because Christ himself rested the validity on all his claims upon his resurrection. Christ be not raised, our message is groundless. For Christ be not raised, our message is void of truth and power. If Christ be not raised, we cannot preach him as Savior because a dead Savior cannot save the living. A dead Savior saves no one. Only a risen, triumphant Christ who overcame the grave has power to save. That's the first consequence of denying the resurrection. You deny the resurrection, you, you subvert the purpose of the entire gospel ministry. Secondly, notice Paul goes on in verse 15. He says, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. The entire apostolic ministry was based on the reality of the risen Christ. It was seeing the risen Christ that called them into their apostleship. And it was their conviction that Christ had risen from the dead that emboldened them to preach the gospel with zeal and authority. And it was the resurrection that served as their grounds to call all men everywhere to faith and repentance. Therefore, if Christ is not risen from the dead, their entire ministry is a sham. Their entire ministry is based upon an event that did not actually happen. They are liars if Christ is not raised from the dead. They are worse than liars because they are intentional, diabolical, mastermind deceivers if Christ did not rise from the dead. They all said that they saw the risen Christ and they, they lied if he did not rise from the dead. They weren't mistaken. They intentionally lied. And worst of all, if Christ did not rise from the dead, they knowingly misrepresented God in their preaching. Paul says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, we are false witnesses of God because we said that God did something that He didn't do. We said He rose Christ from the dead, but He didn't rise Christ from the dead. They bore false witness against the Almighty. What a grave sin it is to get in the pulpit and tell lies about God and misrepresent the Lord. 
If every preacher in America shared Paul's sensitivity and conviction about this sin, many of them would be forced to vacate their pulpits. Because Sunday after Sunday, they stand in the pulpit and they just lie about God. I enter this pulpit in fear and in trembling because I know that if I stray from the truth of Holy Scripture, not only am I misleading all of you, but I'm lying about God. I'm bearing false witness about God. I'm saying that He is something that He isn't or that He did something that He didn't do. What a serious thing that is. A preacher who denies the resurrection is is not just a, a preacher with a minor doctrinal difference. A preacher who denies the resurrection is a false witness of God. You say, well, but there are preachers who might be theologically heretical, but shouldn't we still listen to them because they have some good practical advice on how to live? And to that I say that the last thing we need is a bunch of liars giving us moral directions and advice on how to live. Listen to preachers and teachers who stand unashamed on the gospel of Christ as it's given to us in the word of God. You don't preach the gospel, I have no time to listen to you. I can profit from men who differ from me greatly in theological areas, but when it comes to the gospel, if you don't believe the gospel of Christ, you're a false witness of God. And the Apostle Paul was just horrified by the thought of speaking lies about God. So let us likewise take pains to accurately represent our Lord in everything we say about Him. Well, third consequence. Notice, he goes on, verses 16 and 17 and 18. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. The the vanity of verse 14 referred to the emptiness of faith, but the vanity of verse 17 refers to the fruitlessness of faith. If Christ did not rise from the dead, not only is our faith pointless, our faith is powerless. Without the resurrection, there is no basis for our justification. Romans 4 verses, verse 24 states that Christ was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. But if Christ has not been resurrected, then we have no hope that the penalty of our sin has been borne. If Christ has not been raised, we are still lost. If Christ has not been raised, your baptism was meaningless. Your church membership is pointless. Your observance of the Lord's Supper is worthless because we aren't saved. Our Savior is dead. And we still bear our sins if Christ be not raised. In verse 18, he tells us that those who have fallen asleep are no better off. What a precious phrase that is. The Bible describes the death of believers as sleep. Those who are asleep in Christ. But why does it define the death of believers as sleep? Well, because when you go to sleep, you wake up again. 
So, I know Christians, we don't die. We just go to sleep for a while until our Lord comes back to wake us up. But if Christ is not raised, the death of believers is not sleep because there is no waking up again. If Christ is not raised, that loved one of yours that has died in the Lord, that you take great comfort in their death because you believe that they are in heaven, they're not if Christ did not rise from the dead. Grandma's not in heaven if Christ did not rise from the dead. So you see how the resurrection is just so foundational to so many things that we cherish as believers. What is the cross without the resurrection? It's an atrocity. It's the tragic story of the barbaric death of a delusional Jew who thought he was the Messiah. That's what the cross is without the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then what a sad, pitiful man was Jesus of Nazareth. There was a, a, a hymn writer, I can't recall his name, but he wrote, actually he wrote some hymns that we cherish, really, who later in his life became so delusional that he thought he was the Christ. He thought he was the Messiah. And his hymns are and our hymnal. <laughs> and we look at that and we think, that, that guy, we, we're not even mad at him. We kind of just feel bad for him. How deceived How delusional, how demonically influenced do you have to be to think you're the Messiah of Jehovah? There is no resurrection. That's exactly what Christ was. That's exactly what Jesus was. I know that is... Does that that sound shocking to your ears? It should. Because that's how shocking it is to deny the resurrection. Oh, but brothers and sisters, if He has risen, the Lamb has triumphed. Because His resurrection is God's stamp of approval on everything He ever said and everything He ever did. As Jesus walked out of the tomb, it was as if God was in heaven with a a big red stamp of approval. And, And as Jesus walked out of the tomb, He stamped accepted and approved. Accepted and approved on everything that Jesus did. He did Die to pay for our sins. He did reconcile us to God. He did rise again for our justification. And He is presently interceding for us at the right hand of God if He rose again. He rose again everything He ever said, everything He ever did, everything He ever promised, every covenant He ever made. We can rest assured that it is so. Fourthly, Lastly, notice what Paul says in verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. See, not only our hope in the future of a coming resurrection and an eternity with Christ in heaven. If we don't believe in the resurrection, that's gone. Okay? But even our present hope in this life is lost if Christ did not rise. If all the good we expect from Christ is in this life, we are most miserable. Because we are living our lives based completely upon a false hope 
that will be dashed in pieces when we wake up in hell. Notice that Paul does not commend the nobility of the Christian life, even though it's not true. By the way, please don't use this in your evangelistic conversations. I've heard it said, well, even if you don't believe the gospel, the Christian life is just such a wonderful life to live. No, it's not. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, this is a terrible life. Paul doesn't say, well, even though the resurrection isn't true, the Christian life is still a joy. No, if the resurrection is not true, all of our persecution and hardship and suffering is pointless. All of the time we wasted reading our Bibles and going to church and all of the the money we tithed and all of the sensual and carnal pleasures that we denied ourselves, all because we believed the false hope that a better life with exceeding joy was waiting for us. The truth is, if there is no resurrection, live it up! Because this really is your best life now. The word translated in the KJV is miserable, carries the idea of worthy of pity. I mean, if there is no resurrection, we are the most pitiful people on the face of the earth. The world should look at us and just feel sorry for us. What a bunch of fools. And should feel sorry for us silly Christians who live in this delusional fairy world where people die on crosses and rise again from the dead. If Christ is not raised, everything we do and live for as Christians is a sham. It's not real. We've utterly wasted our time working on this building if Christ is not raised. I'm the epitome of a laughingstock because I preach to you every Sunday. Wasting my life if Christ is not raised. Our evangelistic outreach is just utterly senseless and futile. Why would we go out and preach to our community if Christ did not rise again from the dead? And when we die, that's just it. We just die. Saved from what? But brothers and sisters, aren't you glad that such a reality could not be further from the truth? Notice in our text, not only the perilous denial, but notice in verse verse 20, the powerful declaration. Paul gives this list of consequences, shows them the absurdity of denying the resurrection. And then he says in verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead. Amen. Aren't you glad that Christ is raised and that we do have a most glorious and blessed hope? Aren't you glad that because Christ has risen from the dead, we know that we can endure suffering and hardship and tribulation for a night because joy cometh in the morning? Amen. One day the eastern sky will split in two. And the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. And the last trump shall resound. And Christ our Savior will appear and descend in the glory of his resurrected body. Do you believe that this morning? 
And then all who have died throughout the history of the world will be resurrected from their graves. The wicked will be raised unto condemnation, but oh, the saints, they will be raised unto a glory like that of Christ's glory, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's what I'm living my life for. That's what I'm basing everything upon. I'm here today because I believe that. I I preach to you because I believe that. I I sacrifice and and serve because I believe that. I I go into the community and pass out tracts and preach like a maniac on the street because I believe that. With all of my heart, I believe it. He rose. He's living. And he's coming back. And on that day, when he does come back in in the person of his resurrected body, it will be worth it all. As the hymn says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials shall seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. The resurrection is not just a doctrinal distinctive. It is a doctrinal distinctive, but it ain't just a doctrinal distinctive. Resurrection is our only hope in life and death. (laughs) See, if being a Christian means losing all things in this life, so be it, because we have Christ. And if we have Christ, do you you understand? If you have Christ, all can never be taken from you because He is your all. Don't fret about this evil world, brothers and sisters. Worst thing they can do is kill you. What is that for us who have a risen Christ? And a hope of a resurrection to come. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Amen. Notice, but now is Christ risen from the dead, verse 20, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. What are firstfruits? Well, in the Old Testament, the firstfruits were the first crops to be harvested each year. And those crops were to be offered to God, but they were also a sure sign and a guarantee of a later harvest. (laughs) Jesus was not the first person to rise from the dead. I mean, Jesus himself rose Lazarus from the dead. But Lazarus rose from the grave in the same fallen condition he was in when he went to the grave. Lazarus rose again from the grave, but guess what? He died again and went back to the grave again, and Lazarus right now is still in the grave. But Jesus rose again unto glory. To never die again. To never even be touched by death again. And that's how we will rise when he comes back. His resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. He is the first fruits of them that slept. And the resurrection, brothers and sisters, is not a good possibility. It is a divine certainty. Amen. Hey, I'm looking forward to heaven when I die, aren't you? Yeah. But I'm looking forward to something even better. I'm looking forward to the resurrection. When my glorified body is reunited with my glorified soul, and I can worship the Lord in body and soul throughout the ceaseless ages. Amen. There's coming a day when the redeemed 
shall be conformed to the Redeemer. And in Christ, we will have the whole of our salvation complete. Notice Paul goes on and he says in verse 21, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. The, the Greek here is a lot more emphatic. If you have a translation like the King James that puts words that are added for our understanding in italics, you'll see the, the word came is in italics. The Greek just says, for since by man death, by man resurrection. Paul is explicitly using the language of union between Christ and his people to solidify the certainty of their respective resurrections. Both death and resurrection come by union with a man. A man who was chosen to be the federal representative of his people. And there's only two of them. There will only ever be two of them. Adam and Christ. And as one of the Puritans put it so beautifully and poetically, all of human posterity hangs from the girdle of two men's breasts. You are either united and represented by a man that brings death, or you are united and represented by a man that brings resurrection from death. He goes on in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam brings death because of sin. Christ brings life because of his sinlessness. Adam brings death because he died. Christ brings life because he overcame death. Adam brings death because his sin is the judicial ground for our condemnation. And Christ brings life because his righteousness is the judicial ground for our justification. Adam brings death because we inherit a sinful nature from him, but Christ brings life because we inherit the Holy Spirit from him who works out a holiness within us. See, this is the way that, 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 this is the way that a Christian ought to look at human history. This is the way that a Christian ought to look at race. <laughs> there's, there's Adam and there's Christ. And throughout the history of the world, red, yellow, black, and white, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Just as Adam was a real historical person, so too was the resurrection of Christ a real historical fact. Notice, Christ becomes the first fruits. Our union with Him is, is what affects our resurrection. And Paul caps it off in verse 23 and he says, But every man in his own order. What is he talking about? Well, all who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. Every man in his own order. There's an order to these events. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at His coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, tells us the order of the resurrection. The Bible says, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together, shall be raptured with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Maybe the dead in Christ rise first because they've got six more feet to go. And listen, I'm not going to get caught up in the precise timing of these things. Whatever you believe about uh, what immediately precedes this, what immediately comes after this, or what might happen in the middle of this, so long as you believe this. Christ will come, we will rise with Him, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The second coming of Christ ushers in the end of the world as we know it. Next time we pick up in 1 Corinthians, our text begins in verse 24, Then cometh the end. At His return, He will call us out of our graves to meet Him in a glorified body. There's coming a day in which you and I will rise from our graves because Christ rose from His 2,000 years ago. And it is the, if you don't get anything, get this, it is the resurrection of Christ that gives meaning to everything we do as Christians. Every sermon we preach, every tract we pass out, every church member we love, every trial we endure, every diaper we change, every meal we share together, all of this is done in great anticipation of our glorious resurrection. So let me ask you this as we close. To whom are you united? Right, I want you to ask yourself that question at this very moment. Who is representing you before God in heaven right now? How does God see you and view you? And I hope to God that He doesn't see you as you are in and of yourself. I I, I hope and pray that you are not still lost in your sins, united to your father Adam, under a broken covenant of works, awaiting a resurrection unto condemnation. Have you by faith been united to a risen Christ? Can you say with with the full sincerity of your heart that when I get to heaven, I will be accepted because Christ is interceding for me. When God looks at you and says, why should I let you in? You will be able to say, there's no reason for you to let me in except for that man that sits at your right hand, that lived a sinless life for me and died for me and rose again for me on the third day. That's my only plea. Don't don't be so fooled into thinking that you're going to be able to get to heaven with a long list of your good works and God will accept that. Whatever long list you think that you have that recounts your good works, He's got a list a thousand times as long of every sin you've ever committed. Don't play this silly way in the balances game and try to live a good life and cross your fingers and hope that when you get there the good will outweigh the bad. It won't, brothers and sisters. It won't. He's just. You don't need to do enough good to outweigh the bad. You need to find one who will take all of the bad away. Do you know him in the power of his resurrection? Is he your advocate before the Father? Oh, it brings me great joy to tell you, brothers and sisters, that those who are united to Christ have an advocate in the courtroom of heaven that's never lost a case.
Every sinner ever represented by the counsel of Jesus Christ has left the courtroom not only innocent, but righteous. Righteous. I plead with you, don't stand before God on that day clothed in the filth of your sin-stained garments. Put on the righteousness of Christ and receive by faith the hope of a glorious resurrection. And then sing what we sang this morning. Crown Him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those He came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Living He loved me. Dying He saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that you spared not your only son, but offered him up to die for us on the cross. But we thank you moreover that you would not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You did not leave him in the grave, but you resurrected him on the third day. And up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. And now, Father, we pray that you, by your saving grace, would send the Holy Spirit of God into the hearts of unbelievers and cause within them a vital union with the risen Christ that they might come to know Him and the power of His resurrection. Oh Lord, remind us, Your people, as we are often discouraged and discomforted by the trials and struggles of this life and tempted to despair, remind us of the joy that is awaiting us on the last day. A joy that we can't even begin to comprehend when Christ comes to receive us for his own. There's going to come a day when you will say to your son, go get your bride. We long for that day when we shall spring forth from the grave to a glorified body and ever be with you. Hasten that day, Lord. Come for us. Come for us, O God. Help us until you come to live with a holy excitement and expectation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.